again. Lord, as we come into this time now where we hear your word and, and submit, Lord, to your direction, Holy Spirit, we ask that you, would, that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us. We thank you, God, for your word, for the power of your word to transform, to renew, to convict, God, to save. And we pray, Lord, that all of these things would, would happen today in this time. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, amen. Brent, you're, you're really predicting a long life for yourself, hey? It's like, you got a ways to go. <laughs> Anyways, as we, as we conclude this uh, little mini-sermon series that we're doing here at the beginning of the, this season, this fall season, two-part sermon series, uh, followed by probably a 200-part sermon series through the book of Acts. So enjoy this while you can. Uh, as we conclude this, I, just, I want to quickly recap where we went last week. We said that the church is kind of like a traveler on a rocky, stony path, cutting through these swirling, raging currents, and that the church is always tempted to get sucked into the currents, into, into living by the agendas of the world instead of by God's agenda, and that our, our job is to keep our eyes ahead, to stay on the path, be aware of the winds and the currents, but to stay focused on the vision. And that, uh, that our vision as a church is not anything novel or it's, it's nothing groundbreaking. It's just another restatement of what has always been true of the church, which is that we live to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. That's, that's what we're about. So last week we talked about knowing Jesus. And uh, we talked about Paul's testimony from Philippians 3, where he says, all of these things that I once held so highly, that I valued so highly, I now consider scubalon. And you remember what that word meant, right? Yes, if you were here. It's excrement. I mean, Paul has no regard for it anymore because of the joy of knowing Jesus, the righteousness, this right standing that he had with God because of what Jesus had done. Not because of what he had done, but because of what Jesus had done. And that whole thing set Paul off in a new course, a new orientation in life, where everything, even the hardships, even the sufferings, were all about knowing Jesus. That was last week. This week we're going to talk about making Jesus known. And even the way I, I, I put it that way, one week knowing Jesus, one week making him known, maybe makes it seem like these are two different tasks. It gets at a debate that, that sometimes happens among Christians. You wouldn't think that Christians ever disagree about anything, I know. But sometimes they do. And uh, the debate is, is along the lines of, should you pursue width or should you pursue depth? Should you focus on getting as many people in by any means possible and not worry so much about how deep they grow? Or should you just really try to grow the few people you have deep and not really worry about whether or not you're reaching a lot of other people? It's kind of the, that's more or less kind of the, the debate. Now, I was at a church once and one of my roles there was, was with the young adults, kind of this age group of 18 to 25, 18 to 30-ish. 
And they, they were mostly kids who had grown up, well, adults who had grown up in the church, and I really felt like you could be challenged. You, you, can, you can be challenged to grow. You can dig in deeper. Let's, let's do the fun stuff, but let's also, you know, get into the Bible. Let's, let's talk about evangelism. One day, there was a, a, a leader in the church who was the father of two of the young adults. He comes into my office. So a leader in the church, and he says to me, Craig, I really think you need to stop emphasizing Jesus so much. So leader in the church. He goes, I think you should stop talking about Jesus so much. These, these, these kids, they, they, are, they need to like play basketball and have fun. Like You talk about Jesus, that's going to turn them off. I was just kind of like, what's going on right now? So I, I was just kind of dumbfounded. Later on, though, I wrote, I wrote him a letter, and I said in that letter that I thought what he was suggesting was along the lines of having like a steakhouse restaurant where you serve the best steak in the city, but on all your advertising on the front of the building and on the front of your menu and all your social media posts was the fact that you serve Coca-Cola. This was like your big advertising push. You're like, that's fine. Serve Coca-Cola, but it's probably not what you should be emphasizing. Like what you have going for you is steak, the best steak in the city. So make that central. I said, the church has Jesus. Jesus is the best thing we have going for us. So yeah, we might do some other things, but let's focus on Jesus and make him known. That's the whole point here. But here's the thing. You can only make Jesus known if you actually know him. You, you can't tell other people about him if you haven't actually experienced him and, and known him for yourself. That's why this whole depth versus width thing is totally mistaken. Because we don't have to look at Coca-Cola anymore. We take that down. <laughs> the whole, it's, it's, whole, it's mistaken because if you truly go deep, like, like being formed and shaped by Christ, if you are knowing him more and more, you can't help but make him known. Not just a head knowledge, but like a relational, personal knowledge. You're going to make him known. Doing the first thing, if you do it the right way, inevitably leads to the second. It empowers you for the second. We see this in Paul's life, right? Paul was someone who his whole life was oriented around knowing Christ. And then he goes out and he's one of the most effective missionaries in the history of the church. How many churches does he plant? He goes around, he tells the whole Roman world about Christ. These things go together, and we see that in the passage I want to bring you into this morning, from John chapter 4. Now, um, I'm going to do something a little bit different today, and I asked, I asked some people for advice about this, including my wife, and they gave me the go-ahead. So if you hate it and it goes horribly, you know who to blame. Uh, that's a great marriage thing, right? Is that, that's a great marriage technique. But here's the thing, guys. See, she's upstairs doing kids' ministry, uh, so she doesn't, even, she doesn't even know what's happening right now. So that's also a good marriage thing, right? Just saying things when your wife can't even hear you. Anyways, I'm all just joking. It's going to be totally fine. Um, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> so that's also, a, a remind, you guys should volunteer for kids' ministry so that she can come down and keep me accountable during sermons. Uh, <laughs> Man, can I, st- I, I think I've run out of feet to stick in my mouth. So here's what we're going to do today. 
we are, uh, I, I want to I get you into the context of John chapter 4. I, I want to I focus especially on what happens at the end of this chapter. But to do that, I, I need to kind of get you in on what happens in the first part of the chapter, which is this whole conversation that Jesus has with this, this woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman, kind of longstanding, enemies, opponents of the Jews. And Jesus has this conversation with her. And I, I want to show you, I never do this, but I want to show you a clip, an extended clip from a show called The Chosen. And The Chosen is, uh, is, is I think, a powerful portrayal of the Gospels. It's an ongoing show right now. And they add some, some backstory, they add some artistic kind of flair to it, but they say at the very beginning of the, of the series, they have this little disclaimer where they say all of this has been designed to support the truth and intention of the Scriptures. Viewers are encouraged to actually read the Gospels. So this isn't a replacement for reading the Gospels. You should go back and you should read John 4 on your own, but just as something a little bit different, a creative way of kind of bringing you into the story, we're going to watch this seven-minute clip. I've, again, I don't do this, but enjoy movie morning at the bridge, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig into the, the second half of this chapter after that. Give me a drink. Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come with you in the heat. You have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd, I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Wrong story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. 
You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. Ha <laughs> I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from. Or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes. It explains everything. And sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him. Because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> 
spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temple. Soon. Just the heart. You promise? I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> Wait! You're what there? You forgot your arm. Come on, guys. Who's not crying right now? I got some watery eyes. Um, so that's the context. And uh, and again, go back and read John four for yourself. It's not word for word, but. I think it's a pretty powerful portrayal. Let's, uh, let's pick it up in John 4, verse 28. If you've got your Bible with you. Then, leaving her water jar. And I love how they portray that. Isn't that great? She's, she's met something. She's encountered something even better than getting a drink of water. So she just leaves it there. I love how they show that. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, the the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? I promise you I'm not sick. I really was crying. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. What I want to do today uh, from this text is I want to make four points about evangelism. And I know evangelism is a word that for some people has a kind of um, uncomfortable, connota- uncomfortable connotations are made with it. You think about people on streets yelling and shouting at people. But evangelism really just means the proclamation of the good news. It really is just the practice of making Jesus known. But I don't want to say that whole phrase, so I'm going to stick with evangelism. And four points about this. And here's the first. That evangelism is for every believer. Look at this woman. She has one conversation with Jesus. One interaction with Jesus. And what is the very first thing she does? She runs off back to her town, Sychar, and she tells everybody about Jesus. One conversation. And Jesus doesn't go, whoa, whoa, young lady, back the truck up here. You don't have a bachelor's degree in theology. 
You don't have a master's degree. You haven't, you haven't listened to these 50 podcasts or watched every Bible Project YouTube video ever made. You're not ready yet. Because that's how some of us think, right? Like if I don't know how to answer every objection that someone might possibly have, if I don't know every part of the Bible, there's no way I could tell people about Jesus. I'm just not ready. Was this woman... One conversation, one encounter, one meeting with Jesus, and she wants to tell the world. And Jesus doesn't stop her. In fact, he encourages her, at least according to the chosen. There's another connection here, I think, too, later on in the passage, when, when she's off telling everybody, and, and Jesus is having this conversation with, with his disciples, and he tells them, he reminds them of this phrase that they must have known, it's still four months until harvest, which seems to have been a phrase that, that indicated the need for, for patience and for timing. You can't, you can't rush things. There are, there are seasons. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. And we see that kind of thing in the New Testament and other parts. Jesus talks about how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts small, almost imperceptibly. It grows underground before emerging and becoming this massive plant. You know, um, we, we all know that, that there are time, there are people who are just ready for the gospel. They're open, they're thirsty, but many people who aren't, and it requires a lot of sowing of seeds and watering those seeds before they're ever ready to go. And, and there's actually a, a place for waiting. Jesus, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, tells the disciples, wait in Jerusalem after his ascension until power has come on you from on high. So there is a place for waiting. All of that is true. But that's not the point Jesus is making here. The point he's making is that in Samaria right now it is harvest time and there are no excuses for sitting on the sidelines. We need the workers. We need people to contribute because now is the time. Whether you're ready or not, if you're a believer, participate in the work. And, and uh, I thought about this uh, in, in, re- in relation to the underground church in China. And underground, not because they meet in subterranean locations, but because it's, it's illegal, it's secret. And uh, they have this, this practice they call the immersion technique, where as soon as someone becomes a believer, they, they, they throw them into the work of sharing the gospel in one way or another. And part of this is just pragmatically, because for decades in China, if you had been a leader in the church for a couple of years, you were probably in prison. So you needed a constant kind of pipeline and stream of emerging leaders. You had to get everybody in there because there's so much work and everybody's getting thrown into jail. That doesn't mean that there's no place for training and discipleship and maturity. There is, but it's to say that the mission requires everybody to contribute. You know what I mean? And in China as well, they realized that, that if you didn't get people involved in the work right away, that they probably weren't ever going to get involved. It's, it's like cement. You've got to make the impression before it hardens. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about our Sunday night service, because, because it's, it's for everyone. All of you can come, but it is going to be led by and driven by our youth and our young adults. We're not saying to them, you have to wait 30 or 40 years before you can make a meaningful contribution to the mission of this church. We're saying right now is the time. You don't need to sit on the sidelines. You don't need to say, well, I'm not ready. Was the woman at the well? And yet she was pretty effective. Evangelism is for every believer. 
Here's the second point. That evangelism is driven by witness. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Her testimony, her witness is what is persuasive for them. Now that's a word, you all know what that word means, but it means to affirm that you have seen something, that you've heard something, that you've experienced something. We think about a legal context where someone's on trial and they bring in witnesses who say, yes, I saw that person do that, or I know I didn't, I didn't hear them say that. And their testimony, if it's reliable, is persuasive for whatever verdict gets cast, right? That's your witness. You're saying, yes, I saw or I heard something. You think about celebrity endorsements. Some ripped athlete is like, I drink this protein powder four times a day. That's why I look this way. And you're like, whoa, I should drink that protein powder four times a day. They probably got paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for it, guys. Don't fall for it. But that's the power. That's the power of witness. That's the power of testimony. You go, well, I want that. You've experienced that. I want that too, right? So that's, that's, this, that's this woman. And, and it reminds us, again, why it is so important in the, the task of evangelism, of, of making Jesus known, of going wider, to go deeper. Because you can't, you can't make Jesus known unless you actually know him. Your testimony is going to be involved. And that means you actually must have experienced Jesus, encountered him, been shaped and formed by him in some way. This is why Billy Graham in his, uh, in his evangelistic services, would almost always bring testimonies, bring people up there, because it was one thing to tell the gospel, it's another thing to display the power of the gospel to transform lives. It's why we showed those, uh, those videos of people in our church who have served, because we, we are hoping that you hear them, and they're going, oh, it's so joy. Did you hear the word joy ever? In that video? It's, it's joyful, it's joyful, it's joyful. We're our hope. I know this will come as a shock to you, but our hope is that you'll hear that and go, well, maybe I should serve too, because the testimony is persuasive. It's also a reminder of why evangelism can be for every believer. If you're just starting out in your faith in Jesus, it's still something that you can do, because one of the most essential and basic ways of of evangelism is simply sharing your story, simply telling people this is what Jesus has done in my life. And not even just that, it's also telling people this is why I needed Jesus to do something in my life. There's one book on evangelism uh, that that, uh, there's a quote I want to share with you where he says, one of the best ways you can, best things you can do is authentically share your need for the gospel with others. I kind of love this. I call this sharing the gospel with yourself out loud. This is what you're doing. You're just saying to people, this is why I need Jesus. He healed me. He set me free. He forgave my sins. He showed me love that I had never experienced before. Sharing the gospel with yourself out loud. Everybody who has met Jesus can do it, like this woman. Um, And it it also is a reminder, I think, of, of how important it is that our witness is authentic. That that is backed up by a changed life. See, I think that's the most powerful thing about this portrayal from the chosen. This woman, you see her come to the well and she, she's isolated. She's by herself. She's, she's despised and cut off by her own people. She is, she's bitter, isn't she? She's bitter when she comes to the well, mired in this, this kind of self-hatred. 
And then, and then Jesus meets her, and throughout this conversation, she is, she's transformed. And it's believable, isn't it? When you look at it, you're like, yeah, like meeting someone like Jesus would, would change you. And so she goes back to town, and she's no longer bitter. She's full of joy. She's full of hope. She's telling everybody about Jesus. She, no, nobody would look at her and go, well, you know, you, you, I don't really believe you. I don't, I don't think anything's really changed with you. Are you kidding me? Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, said something like this. By the way, I don't know if they, I don't think that's like a thing that you can really rank. I I imagine like I watch these viral videos of of sports journalists debating about who's like the greatest basketball player of all time. It's obviously Kyle Lowry. And and then uh, I just imagine what if what if pastors sat around debating who is the greatest preacher of all time? Like at least 20 views on YouTube, for sure. Anyways. Charles Spurgeon said that the greatest force of the sermon lies in what has gone before the sermon, which is convicting for me as a, as a, as a preacher, that it's not just the words that I say, it's the life that I live, it's what happens throughout the rest of the week that gives force to the sermon. And it's the same thing with our testimony, with our witness that the force of your witness lies in what has gone before it in your life, in in your walk with Jesus, which is yet another reminder to devote yourself to knowing Christ, to orienting your life around knowing Him, because the more you know Him, the more you've met Him, the more persuasive your testimony is, the more people are led to the same One who has saved you and loved you. So evangelism is for every believer. Evangelism is driven by witness. Third point is that evangelism is a team sport. Now you don't really get that at first from the story because the woman kind of is like, like, a, like a superstar in a solo sport. You know, she, she's like Layla Fernandez. She's Bianca Andreescu. She's, just, she's going out. She's telling everybody. You know, it's, it's, she, she's on her own in this way. Although I, I realized after saying that, that even a sport like tennis, there's a whole team of support around. You get the point. So it seems like that, but then you, you get this conversation that Jesus has with the disciples as she's doing her thing, and, and he talks about this, this image of sowing and reaping. He says, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. That's verses 37 and 38. Now what is Jesus talking about? I think... Um, Kind of in the context, he's talking about big picture, what we could call salvation history. That what the disciples are seeing and participating in through the mission of Jesus is is the culmination of years and years and years of the Lord's work. Uh, you think about, about, about Moses and the prophets all the way up to John the Baptist, all anticipating and looking forward to Jesus, all in one sense sowing and watering seeds. And, and that's true even of, of Samaria. So a little bit of context here. Uh, the kingdom of Israel had been split into two. And the northern kingdom, which was ten tribes, ten of the sons of Jacob, their descendants, uh, they, they were a bit more wayward in their worship, a bit more syncretistic. And, and eventually God allowed them to be conquered and exiled by the, the kingdom of Assyria. And some people stayed and they intermarried with the other groups of people around them and, and even became more syncretistic, more wayward in their worship. But they still held the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, 
to be authoritative and true. They still had Moses. They knew that Moses had promised a prophet, someone coming after him who would be greater than him. They had this seed of the anticipation of a Messiah. So Jesus is telling them, look, he's telling the disciples, look, what you see happening now, it's, it's, it's not coming out of the blue. People, other people have sown. You just get to reap. You didn't sow this, but you get to be part of this. And I think about that as a church. If God does anything of significance for the kingdom in and through us, in and through this place, it will be because he has been sowing seeds for years and years and years before this, both in this congregation and also in this, in this community. We are going to reap what we, what we have not sown. And this is also true in the lives of individuals. That, that, that no one really just kind of comes out of the blue and is like, boom, I'm a believer. Usually it's a process and lots of people are involved. I, I remember watching a testimony of a Punjabi woman years ago. Lots of barriers to faith. And she talked about how all of these people, I want to say she listed like 10 different Christians at different times who had spoken into her life, who had come in and, and offered support and love, and how all of these people led to the point of, of committing her life to Christ. It's kind of like Paul says in 1 Corinthians about how these Corinthians are arguing about, oh, we're, we're Paul people, we're Apollos people, we're Peter people. And Peter go, or Paul goes, look, I, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God's the one making it grow all along. We have our different parts as we walk along people in their lives. So don't grow discouraged if you don't get to do the harvesting. If you're not, if you're not getting to see, you're wanting to make Jesus known, but you're not seeing people make that decision. Don't be discouraged. Because it could be that in this season, there's more planting and watering and, and weeding that needs to take place. And don't think that you are in this alone. It strikes me, even in the Gospels, that Jesus sends the disciples out on mission. He sends them out two by two. He doesn't tell them to go off on their own. And we'll see this in the book of Acts as well, that for the most part, it's not individuals, it's teams of people going out. There's, uh, there's a couple of women in our church who I know, they go to uh, Panorama Park, they go to Lonsdale Key, they go to other kind of places, and together they go around asking people how they can pray for them. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's something that requires quite a bit of boldness. But when you're together in this, when you don't think, well, I've got to do the sowing and the watering and the reaping and all of that, but together with different gifts and abilities, that changes things. It's okay if you're a tennis fan. Tennis is great. And sometimes evangelism is like that. Again, I realize, tennis is still a team sport. Anyways, oftentimes evangelism is maybe a bit more like football where you have all kinds of different skills and abilities contributing to one, one end, one goal. But ultimately, it's not us who actually do the, the work, ultimately the work of evangelism, which leads to the, the fourth and final point about this. Evangelism is ultimately done by Jesus. So Jesus, in his conversation with his disciples, talks about his food. I love how the, the chosen, if you were to watch the clip a little bit further, the disciples are just totally befuddled about what Jesus is saying here. This whole food thing. They're like, what? Who brought on food? Anyways, Jesus says, it's my food to finish my father's work. And what's the father's work? Well, Jesus launches into this whole thing about sowing and reaping and reaping a harvest of eternal life. 
the work that Jesus has is to make Himself known, to make the Father known, to make the Kingdom known. His work is what we've been talking about. His work is evangelism. Jesus doesn't want to remain hidden from people. He wants us to go out to share the Word. He wants to make Himself known. He wants to meet with people. He's passionate about this. That's why if you become more like Him, you become more evangelistic. So he's passionate about this. And then there's this line in verse 42 where all the Samaritans have gathered around and they tell the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Her testimony was persuasive, but it wasn't enough. They actually had to hear Jesus. They actually had to meet Jesus. And when they do, their belief takes on a whole other meaning. Right now, he is the Savior, their Savior, the Savior of the world. See, sometimes when those of us who are followers of Jesus want to share the good news, we, 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 we bear all this weight on, our, on ourselves. We think this is something that we need to do. We need to save people. But that's not our job. Our job is to introduce people to the one who can save them. One of my favorite definitions of evangelism is from my friend and mentor, Daryl Johnson, who says something along these lines. He says, evangelism is entering into a conversation that Jesus is already having with someone. So Jesus has been at work in this person's life long before I show up. And he'll continue to be at work afterwards. I just get to enter into this conversation in this season, in this time. It's Jesus who's doing the work. I just get to partner with him in it. All right. Conclusion. What do you do with all this? What are your next steps? Our calling is to make Jesus known. How do you participate in this? Four quick things. First thing is to grow in your knowledge of Jesus. We've said that a number of times. This is from last week. Commit in your own life to setting aside time for Scripture, for prayer, so that you can grow in your relationship with Him. Do it as, as, uh, in, in, in the context of the church as well. Uh, join a community group. Join a discipleship group. Those things we talked about last week. Commit to knowing Christ. Second thing is to actually look for opportunities to testify, to actually bear witness Maybe you try this. Maybe if you've got a, a coworker or a friend or something, uh, maybe you can say to them, hey, I'd love to hear you kind of tell your life story, and, and I, I want to share my story with you. You know, sometimes you've known someone for a long time, but you've never actually just heard them kind of tell their story. Ask, ask to hear their story and ask if you can share yours. And, uh, and Jesus is probably going to be part of your story. Look for opportunities to bear witness about what Christ has done in your life. Third thing is to pray. If Jesus really is the one doing the work of evangelism, then prayer is essential. It's crucial. And it's actually how we pray as a church when we gather together. On Mondays at noon and tomorrow, I think we're going to actually be right here in this space tomorrow at noon. We, we pray evangelistically. We pray for people to know Jesus. That's really the focus and the emphasis in our prayers. So pray, and, and, and we've got these, um, along those lines, we've got these door hangers upstairs at the Welcome Center. The idea is that you take a bunch and you go for a prayer walk and, and you just pray for houses and you leave a door hanger on, on their door that says, we've prayed for you. 
something that simple can be part of making Jesus known. And, and the fourth thing, and this kind of ties all of those together, is to do this in community. Do all of these things, the, the growing in the knowledge of Jesus, the testifying, the praying together in community. You were created to make Jesus known with others. So do it as, as part of the church. What card are you guys going to fill out after the, the service? The serve card. One person's going to do it. That's great. I'll make my day. Although I think that was Robert, and Robert already does like 25 things. So um, fill out a serve card. Join us in this. Uh, children's ministry. Have I mentioned children's ministry? We, we have a need there, and it's making Jesus known to an, to an emerging generation. That's the work you're doing. Even something as mundane as helping with setup and takedown of, of this building after services is part of making Jesus known. So, so consider doing that. Grow, testify, pray, and community. The Samaritans understood that Jesus was the Savior of the world. And the disciples in the book of Acts, as we'll see, proclaim to others that there is no other name under heaven given by which people can be saved. We believe and we proclaim that in Jesus there is forgiveness of sins, that there is freedom to live as beloved children of God. There is salvation from judgment and condemnation. So let's make him known. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you make yourself known, that you have made yourself known to us through the gospel, through your word. We thank you that you made yourself known to this Samaritan woman at the well and for her testimony. And we pray, Lord, that we would be filled with your spirit, that we would be your witnesses in this world, that we would make you known individually and as a church, Jesus, there is none like you, and so we pray, Lord, that your name would be lifted high and that many would come to saving faith in you, Lord, that they would know your goodness and your grace. So, Lord, we consecrate, we, we commit ourselves to you today and pray that you would use us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.